Hi, this is Elizabeth Bailey, and you're listening to the Citizens Podcast from Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. We live in a world full of fragile relationships. Nation and nation stop talking to each other and go to war. Nations go to civil war all the time. Marriages go to civil war about 50% of the time in America and end in divorce. One Dutch study put it this way, that rarely do any adult friendships survive seven years. Only about 30% of your current friends will still be your friend, someone you would talk to if you saw in public in seven years. But if you make it to 13 years, an encouraging thing, you'll probably be friends for life. Funny how that study turned out. But God has been teaching us in 1 Thessalonians how to live at the end of the world. And it concludes with this, that we're not just personally learning to grow up in our faith. We're not just personally learning to be sanctified. Instead, we are to grow up in faith, hope, and love together. That this isn't a solitary me and my Bible exercise. Instead, 1 Thessalonians explicitly says, if you want to live well at the end of the world, you must do it together. Look with me at verse 23. It says, now may the God of peace sanctify you completely. Your whole spirit, your whole soul, your whole body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. And you might say, oh, that's nice. That sounds exactly like what we've been talking about, exactly what we've been preaching. But here's the deal, church. That you right there isn't a singular. It's a plural. In fact, every single verb and every single you in the entire book of 1 Thessalonians has been plural. All of these things were meant to be obeyed both personally and corporately. That God's plan for your sanctification involves other people. We tend to read it as Americans and go, oh, yeah, I got to do this, 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 this. And this is saying you must be sanctified together or not at all. That us growing up in the faith is actually dependent on one another. Us living faithfully to the end is actually dependent on the Chapmans and Molly and Joel and Daisy and Marco. If we don't do it together, we're not going to make it at all. So here's the truth that when Paul is writing 1 Thessalonians, he's detailed this for five chapters of how to grow up in our faith, hope, and love together. In chapter one, he gave us this clear picture of turning from dead idols to the living God. In chapter two and three, he talked about how presence matters, that if you're not present to God and his people, then your love is just a myth. It's like having getting a loan, but there's no money involved. You have to be present in order to love one another, and we know that. We know when a parent wasn't around growing up. We know how all the love became emptier as they became more distant. We know all the friendships that fall apart quick are the ones you're not present for. It's common sense, but it's not common practice. And that's why Paul lays into him, says, your presence matters, whether it's in community group or Sunday or friendships or texts or phone calls of getting together It matters. And in chapter four, Paul went in and said, hey, this sanctification, this growing up to look like Jesus, that means our bodies too. It means our sexuality. It means our relationships. It means who we are in the community and who we are in the wider community around us. And he doubles down in chapter four and five to tell us that our grief can be filled with hope. Why? Because Jesus rose from the dead. And if you're in Christ, you'll rise from the dead to the Father. And that one day the skies will rip open and Jesus will return. 
And that's why we called the series How to Live at the End of the World. Because the Bible teaches that every day in between the day Jesus rose from the dead in 33 AD to the day Jesus comes back is the end days. Because no one knows when the Lord comes back, whether it's in the parking lot later today or in another 2,000 years. That we're called to grow up in our faith, specifically faith, hope, and love, and emphasizing today together. And what it would look like to grow up together is to become a durable church that lasts to the end. A durable church that lasts to the end. Most of us have never been a part of a healthy church, so you don't really know what it looks like. But the scriptures can tell us, the scriptures can lead us, the scriptures can show us. Look at the word durable with me. It's not a common word in our language, but it's a good one. Durable says able to withstand wear, pressure, or damage, a hard wearing. And I love this word durable because if you think that church will just hold together on its own, we are being naive. Because people don't just hold together on their own. We live in a broken world and we have a sinful self. We come apart all the time. Therefore, we need instructions of how will we last to the end? How will we be a healthy church for a hundred year vision? Not just cool for a hundred months, but a hundred years of following Jesus when we're long put in the grave. If y'all plan to live to 120, y'all need to call Elon Musk and say, hey, Y'all better make a plan because we ain't making it that far. But my hope is that we make decisions that people would be thriving in the gospel 100 years because of our faithfulness today. That we'd start out living in our churches, the trees in the neighborhood. That the gospel would be rich and real to the very day that the the Lord returns through us. So Paul gives us ways to build this durable church. He's going to give us four ways. Look with me at verses 12 through 13. The first way is this, that a durable church respects the pastor of pastors. Verse 12, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. We learn in this verse, verse 12, it says that pastors are to work. They are to labor. They're to labor in the word of God. They're labor in prayer. They're to labor with people. They're labor in the community. But they also are to be over you in the Lord. And what that means, the word used there is just the word to lead. The bigger picture in the Bible would be to shepherd as a sheep himself. That we would be fellow sheep who are under shepherds to the great shepherd of the Lord Jesus Christ. That there would be a sense that your pastor works hard and he works with joy, not easy work, but joyful work, and that he would shepherd you to guide the sheep under the direction of the great shepherd, Jesus. And this includes this word admonition. And most of us don't know what the word to admonish someone is. We don't use it much in our culture. But to admonish someone is to say, hey, this is a negative way or negative behavior. This is a straying from the path. And an admonishment would be say, hey, this is how we get back on the path. It's gentle. It's firm. It's it's both uh, compassionate, but it's also courageous to be able to say, hey, this is a negative way. This is a way to not follow Jesus. Here's a way to follow Jesus. And that's what it means to admonish. It's to help someone in a correction of behavior, a correction 
of direction. And it's not easy work, but that's a necessary part of God's clear scriptural plan for a pastor to function. That's what I'm called to do and to labor and shepherd, to lead, to admonish. And the church researcher, Thom Rayner, did a small study of pastoral expectations. He went to a church and asked their leaders and said, hey, how do you think the pastor should spend his time? And they all wrote down all the different things they thought the pastor should do, and they came up with how many hours and assigned all the hours, and they came to an agreement uh, independently of each other. And it turned out that it took about 110 hours of work a week to become a faithful pastor. Now, there's only 168 hours in a week. I do not work 110 hours in a week and never will be. I'm not going to work 16-hour days, seven days a week, and I don't think any of y'all are demanding that. But instead, I want to work and be faithful to the Lord, be faithful in shepherding, be faithful in admonishing, because a pastor that works constantly is probably going to be disqualified for not spending time with God, his family, or on their health. It would be a matter of time. And instead, I plan to be faithful to God, my family being my second priority. My third priority being a mixture of my own health and ability to sacrifice for others' good in a sustainable, longevity way. Because it's really tempting to be unlimited or to think you are, especially when you're a pastor and there's always more I could do. And I think a lot of pastors burn out. The average length of a pastor is 10 years, just seven years before they leave ministry. This is year 13 for me, and I'm having a lot of joy pastoring this church. It's been a blast planting it with y'all. But I want to keep it that way, and I want to live in a way that says I am limited, and I want to trust the Lord with what I can do this day, this week, this month, this year, this decade, in a healthy way, and make myself depend on Jesus Christ with the same vision for the elders of our church as we bring those in in the coming months. You all want to meet me in that holiness? That we trust Jesus big and it's okay for pastor to be in his right place, not trying to be more than he is, but just to be the person I am? You all down with that? I'm going to need a real amen for that one, church. (laughs) Our vision is that Jesus would be the true shepherd of our church that I could be a pastor and not the Holy Spirit in your life. But verse 12 and 13 calls you to respect and esteem the pastor very highly in love. And the same with future fellow elders at our church. Elder's an interchangeable word for pastor. But we're to be esteemed and respected and loved because of our work. It goes along with the pastoral office or the nature of the work. It doesn't mean we have to think the same way. It doesn't mean you have to think I'm particularly charming in personality. It doesn't mean our elders have to be your personal best friend by any means. But it rather means that you would just respect that God has gifted and called some to lead and shepherd in this capacity and to admonish others and see that they're called to help plant and pastor citizens in this very way. That you'd esteem my work in the kingdom and our fellow elders one day as a high responsibility and authority necessary according to the scriptures. My favorite verse on this topic is Hebrews 13, verse 17, because it says this. It says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls, 
as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for that would be no advantage to you. Don't get more honest than that. I must work and lead and admonish for us to be a healthy, durable church, but not in abstract, but with actual people. Because I'm accountable to do my best to watch over your soul, to help us last to the end. Something I very necessarily take very seriously in our membership and membership role. I have to give an account to God. And that accountability is a precious responsibility that takes a certain level of authority to do. People have to want to be pastored. And if you're wondering, well, how do I know if I'm being respectful? Well, here, here's a good, a good test. It's right here in this verse. It says, am I a joy to pastor? Am I someone that makes the pastor groan? Or another word for groan there would be a grief, a burden, a sadness, a sorrow. Or... Am I a joy to pastor? Am I hard to pastor, hard to work with, being stubborn or judgmental, not listening? Because the scripture says that's no advantage to you. Being tough on your pastor isn't going to help you, the pastor, or anybody else. Sometimes you hear these horror stories of a deacon's meeting that forced out the pastor and blah, 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 blah. And they're horror stories for a reason. It's no advantage to anybody. Why? Well, you're hard to pastor, it will tempt me to do less pastoring of you. <laughs> if you're hard to pastor, you'll likely miss the growth God has for you. And if you're hard to pastor, you'll probably behave your way out of membership eventually. There's a reason that people are a part of five different churches in five years. We all know folks like that. Maybe you're like, man, I've been that guy. <laughs> well, today could be a new day because I believe grace is real for you and everybody, including me. God's will is not that pastoral work would be easy, but it says right here that it would be a joy. If you want to know if a pastor is a healthy guy, if he's doing a good job, does he have joy? The more joy, the better place. And it doesn't mean I'm happy slappy all the time, but that I'd have a joy in my heart that the Lord is good no matter what else is going on in my life or the world or our church. I want to thank y'all just for being a people of grace. It's been a real joy to pastor citizens, and I can't wait to go forward. Just like in this book, it says often that he's not rebuking the Thessalonians, but just encouraging them forward. And I hope you'd hear that today to encourage you as we move to a phase that we'll have fellow elders. We'll announce them on 822 as a part of our celebration. We'll vote much later. But I pray that it would continue a relationship of joy and grace where we grow together, that we're not trying to impress or perform, but honestly follow Jesus to the very best of our ability. I want to guide us to be a durable church that helps one another. Look at verse 13 with me. It says this, this is how you build a durable church. It says, be at peace among yourselves. We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, and see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. See, a durable church is possible 
but it requires an act of peace or it will come apart and not last. And an act of peace means every member, not just the pastor, does these things. We warn the idol. A different word for idol there is the unruly. Another, another translation gets more real and says the lazy. Those who refuse to do the basic work in life should be warned, should be told that that's not the way to live. They should be admonished, not just by the pastor, but by the congregation. That if you are a member of a church, you have the right to speak kindly and gently into one another's lives, not as the exception, but as the rule. And more so, the warn, we are to encourage the faint-hearted. That if a friend's down, if you see a friend down in the dumps, you see a friend struggling, man, that's a man down, hand down. You need to grab them and pick them up. It tells you explicitly, encourage the faint-hearted. That is a must. Your obedience hangs on it. Don't say, oh, maybe Justin should grab lunch with him. Man, you eat lunch too. Go grab them. If you see someone down, it's time to pick them up. And you know, it's not to make them happy slappy, but encourage them with what's true. Reaffirm the love of the Lord and your love for that person. So it says to warn, to encourage, and then it says to help the weak. Man, this is an amazing thing. The day you acknowledge your weakness is not a problem, but it's actually the path to know God. Weakness is not a problem to solve here at Citizens. In fact, weakness is what you need to bring to the forefront. The day you start growing is the day you admit that you're weak and you need God and you need other people. Not just once in salvation, but man, do you know what I hope you walk into CG saying? I hope I can share my weakness and need for God here, for the leaders and the participant. That's a group that's going to grow to the moon. Citizens Church is a place to be weak, to be broken, to have needs, to be met by Jesus and his church. And it's so key in the scripture because what it says that all this needs patience. If you rush it, you'll ruin it. This isn't like summer camp where you're like, all right, we got six weeks together. We better get real. We better just dump it all. We're going to be best friends and never see each other again, ever. That's not this. We're going to be here next week, all of us. And we've all moved to an adult phase of relationships. I get some stuff takes time, but you can still be honest. You can still share your great need. Be ready for the encouragement and accept people's help. How would have your past week been dramatically different if you put your hand up and asked for help? You ever see that in a sports game when someone, like a women's basketball, they're playing and won the gold and they put their hand up when they're like, hey, I'm legit tired. Like, I can't wait for the next rotation. You need to sub me out. What if you started putting your hand up to say, I'm legit tired. I'm in over my head and boy, I need help. And we are people that didn't think that was weird, but said, oh, absolutely. I can't wait. You can both need help and be a help to another person. The only person that needs to be super strong at Citizens is Jesus. I need help all the time. You know how I end my sermon prep? You've done all the reading. You've written it. You've rewritten it. You've cut all this stuff. You're like, oh, that's not funny. That's kind of weird. That's not even in the text. Cut, 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 cut. And then I just pray and pray and pray and pray and pray until, as Matt Chandler says, pray till you're hot and you've applied the scripture to your own soul, and then you're ready to go. doesn't matter the text. I don't have favorites. I like them all, and I can't wait to tell them and lead you and shepherd you to where the grass is green and the water runs clear 
And it's okay to be weak because Jesus is strong. See, Paul is describing a community that can be like a cocoon or the real word chrysalis. I had to learn from a children's book. A cocoon or a chrysalis around a caterpillar. That he wants us to warn, encourage, help the weak, but also, as the scripture says, forgive and do good. You can't apply the gospel in abstract. You can't apply forgiveness without another person. God's vision for his durable, beautiful community is that you would become a free forgiver like God. There's no way you can be in a relationship, whether you're dating, whether you're married, whether you're friends, whether you're roommates, you will have conflict. So we don't need to be surprised by it but rather ready to forgive before it starts and choose to do good. Because what will happen if we continue to build a community that warns encourage, and helps the weak, full of forgiveness and good, it will be like the silk of the caterpillar building that chrysalis to actually let each member be ugly in transformation and actually change. Most people have never been in a community like that. And so, therefore, they stay Christian infants forever. That's how you meet people who are maybe in their 50s or 60s, and you're like, wow, that's, that's a pretty unmature view of life. But you can be different, but it's going to need other people. You can be a part of being the silk for another person. You can be the silk for each other. But it does take you to say, I'm a someone who needs a cocoon or I'm not going to be different. I can't change without the support and love to know I'm safe and the people around me are strong in the Lord and want to love me. But I believe it's happening and can happen even more, this solid, tight, safe community. Because I can't tell all the stories. They're the best part of citizens, but most of the best stories are private. Those are the best stories aren't to put on a screen or shoot photos of or anything like that. But I can tell you some quotes. So if you hear your quote, well, all right. These are just from June and July. Here are the five best ones I found that were told to me. I think for the first time ever, I've learned to live the gospel daily. This is the most growth I've had in years. I've been loved before in church, but never supported to actually grow and follow the Lord deeper. I don't think I've ever been truly fed spiritually before the past two years. My life is more diverse in age, race, ethnicity, economics now than ever, and I want to keep pursuing a beautiful church. We are so thankful to have a community to live and go through hard things with. Not sure where we'd be without it. Church, I want us to be a durable church, not because I like that word, but because without a cocoon, none of us are going to grow. And we don't have a shot at lasting unless we will continue to grow and change together. Will you keep forming that cocoon with community groups? Will you be patient with each other to know it takes time? This isn't summer camp. Your real life has begun, and it can happen this week. 
How is all this possible? Well, a durable church keeps Jesus at the center. Look at verse 16 with me. It says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything and hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. And this part can feel like a rattled off big to-do list. Like, wow, I got a lot to do if I'm going to follow this scripture. And it would be a big to-do list if Jesus wasn't at the center. See, Paul assumes for the Thessalonians and assumes for you that Jesus is at the very center of your life. So you have reason to rejoice. See, when Jesus is at the center of your life, you have reason to give thanks. If Jesus is at the center of your life, why not pray? Because he's listening to you. See, all these things become an of course when you belong to Jesus. You have reason to do them. Furthermore, why not listen to God? That's what he means by prophesying. He's talking about the word of God or someone emphasizing the word of God to you. That's what he means by test everything. If someone ever has a prophecy for you that it's not easily found in the scriptures or a sentiment like that found in the scriptures, then that means test everything and that one failed. A prophecy is just the emphasis of God's word in your life. And it says, don't squelch them, don't stifle them, don't stop them. If someone says, hey, I want to encourage you, admonish you, and it's a scriptural thing, you should pay lots of attention to it. Whether it's in a pulpit mic or in your CG or just your best friend talking. It says when Jesus is at the center, of course God's going to talk to us through his people, through the pulpit, through the scriptures, all the time, even as we test everything and abstain from what is evil. And I want to ask you, if that's not you, if you find your life is mostly prayerless, that you find yourself mostly complaining over your last 200 text messages, if you find yourself in a relatively joyless life, not circumstantial happiness, but a rather joyless life, a pretty complaining existence, a refusal to give thanks, I just want to invite you to repent and come believe in Jesus for real. Because my happiness, my joy, my thanksgiving isn't based on my life. I have much to be thankful for, but at the end of the day, my life, and I see the testimony of so many citizens going through terribly hard things, continuing to raise their hands in worship, continuing to weep tears but grieve with hope, just as this book says, because Jesus is at the center of their life. So if you find yourself saying, yeah, I'm a Christian, yeah, 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 but you're rather complaining and joyless and thankless, I want to invite you to the real Jesus and not be embarrassed to say, man, I, I've probably believed in this in this." grand charade of things, but I've not met the actual Jesus who gives me an actual reason to rejoice that he rose from the dead. And so nothing else matters. I was in China with Clay, I don't know, about 10 years ago. And I remember we were leaving this educational building and we'd been warned by the person that morning, do not share your faith. Do not go tell anyone about Jesus. If that's why you're here, you're getting kicked out the country. Then we stepped out the building, and we were supposed to go share our faith, fully knowing people are, like, watching us from the building. And then the rain started just to pour down, like a half a monsoon showed up. And we had this huge decision, because if we just crawled back up to the dorms, it wasn't going to work out that summer. We were going to struggle. My man Frank was there, too. And we had a moment to look at each other and said, well, Jesus still rose from the dead, so let's grab a poncho. 
And out we went. I want you to be a grab a poncho person because Jesus rose from the dead. So you have reason to rejoice, reason to obey what is good, reason to abstain from what is evil and give thanks in all your circumstances. You don't have to give thanks for evil things, but you can give thanks for God amongst evil things in your life. And that's what genuine Christianity is. That's how you live when the world is ending. And that's how together we will become a durable church. Amen? A durable church is held by the faithfulness of Jesus. Look with me at verse 23. It sounds... Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit, soul, body be kept blameless at our coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful and he will surely do it, church. Brothers, pray for us. Jesus calls you to be a durable church, not because you are great, not because citizens is great, but because Jesus is gonna be faithful to the very end. Amen? Jesus' faithfulness is not nullified by our unfaithfulness. And this is where the historical black church has a saying that's so helpful. The saying goes, won't he do it? And the answer, y'all, is yes. Let's try it again. Won't he do it? Oh, we're going to have to do a little better than that. Won't he do it? Yes. Jesus will surely do it. Look what it says. It says, Jesus will surely do it, church. You have a God who's going to do it. If you wonder if I'm going to last to the end, it's that Jesus will surely do it. Do we have to obey? Do we want to obey? Well, that's what it means to follow Jesus. You want to obey. If you don't want to obey, you don't follow Jesus. But if you want to obey, be sure, church, he will surely do it. He's more faithful to you than you'll ever be to him. Christianity, true Christianity, what it means to be saved is to trust Jesus' faithfulness for your life. Your salvation isn't on what you do or you say, but on what Jesus has done and what Jesus has said, that he rose from the dead and he's coming back, I don't know, later this afternoon or in 2,000 years or more. But we are called to be a people who lives here at the end of the world, maturing in faith, hope, and love, week by week, year by year, You all want to be that durable church? Amen. Jesus is building a durable church. Let's follow his direction. You've been listening to the Citizens Church Podcast. Special thanks to Murphy DX, who recorded our theme music. If you'd like to learn more about Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama, you can visit us on our website at citizensbhm.com or on the usual suspects, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.